We began this chapter last week, and we will work our way to the end of it this morning. The opening, the opening chapter of this book really does set the tone, and it sets the uh, focus for the rest of the book. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, the very first words of the book, tell you what this book is about. This book is intended to reveal to us the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope your Bible does not say uh, for the title of this book like my Bible does. This one says, The Revelation of St. John the Divine. It's not the revelation of St. John the Divine. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And thankfully, that's what verse number one says. Uh, They just messed up the title here in this particular uh, Bible that I have. But the Bible tells us in this book that it's about him. Look at verses 7 and 8 in chapter number 1, or you can listen as I read them. Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 say, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come the Almighty, Jesus Christ. This book is all about him. It puts, it puts our attention on him. It tells us what he has planned for this planet. It tells what he has planned for his church. It tells what he has planned for the lost of the world. So we're looking today in chapter number 19, and it's taken us a little while to get here, uh, but here, here we are. Back in chapter 5, the Lord Jesus took from the hand of his father a seven-sealed scroll, and that scroll ended up, we've learned, ends up being the title title deed of the earth. And he takes it from the Father, it says in chapter 5 and verse 7, and it's right that Jesus should take it, because the earth is his. The Bible says in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all they that dwell therein. So it's right that he should take it this scroll. And we walked through that scroll, the seal judgments. We, As those seals were undone, we saw that. Today, the God of this world, little g God, is, is Satan, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And he has, he has uh, designated power from God to do as he wants up to a certain point. But the thing about that is he will not retain that title. He's not going to forever be the God of this world. He doesn't have the power to do that, nor does he have the authority to do it. The earth is the Lord's. One day, he's going to come back and he's going to claim it as his own. And he's going to set up his throne. That day is coming when his possession will be final and it will be eternal. Because the earth is the Lord's. John Phillips says that the world is Christ's because of three great truths. First... This world is his by right of creation. He made it. Second, it's right by Calvary. He redeemed it. And third, it is right by conquest, and he will retake it. So we're looking today at that third one. The king is coming. This is a good passage of scripture today. It's great for the Christian. It's hope for the lost person. But I want you to know this morning, the king is coming. 
The first 18 chapters of the book have been leading us to this moment that we consider today when Jesus returns from heaven and comes to earth and he takes possession of the he takes possession of the planet. One of the one of the uh, purposes of the tribulation period. We've been studying it now from chapter 6 through verse uh, through chapter 18. One of the purposes is to prepare the earth For the coming of the king. That great moment when Jesus Christ will fulfill his promise. And he will return in power and glory. Completely differently than the way he came the first time. You remember how he came the first time. The world knows about that. The world knows about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And born in a manger. And growing up in a carpenter's home. And many people in the world know that Jesus lived and that he died and was crucified. But when he comes, when he comes back, his return will be quite different. Everything about it is going to be different. The first time he came as redeemer, the second time he's coming as ruler. The first time he bore a cross... The second time, Scripture says he comes wearing a crown. His first coming, he temporarily occupied Joseph's tomb. His second coming, he will eternally occupy the universe's throne. Everything about the second coming of Jesus is completely different from the first. These are exciting verses For the Christian who believes in the literal return of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian who doesn't believe that Jesus is literally coming back, you are ripping yourself off of some great and encouraging truth. I don't want the world, I don't want the world to be like this all the time. Do you? There's a book out there written by one of my favorite authors called, authors called Your Best Life Now. I do not want this to be my best life now. He's not my favorite author. He's my least favorite. If this is the best it gets, then put me out of my misery. We talk about people we love dealing with terrible diseases. We grieve death. We struggle and toil. It's hard to make ends meet at times. We struggle in this life. This can't be our best life now. I've got good news for you. It's not. There's coming a much better day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he sets everything straight. This is about that day. Revelation chapter 19, look at verse number 11 if you would. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood And his name is called the word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. 
that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. That is an incredible passage of scripture. Did you notice how how very little detail is given about the battle? It says in verse number 19, all these armies have gathered together. And in verse number 20, the battle's over. There's nothing to it. Two leaders are taken captive. Everybody else is slaughtered. There's nothing to this battle. This is the coming of the king uh, that is called in in this passage of scripture. He's called faithful and true and the word of God and the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the coming of the king. Let's ask God to bless our, our time together in his word. We'll, we'll pick these verses apart this morning and see what God is leading us, uh, the hope that he's giving us through these verses. Lord, bless your word to us today. Bless every part of it. We pray that uh, you, would have, you would have free course in us. There are certainly things that could be distracting our minds this morning. Heavy burdens being borne by people in this room, joining us online. Lord, would you, through your Holy Spirit, for the next few minutes, arrest our attention with the, with the truth that the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is coming. And nothing's going to change that. He's coming in power, and he's coming in glory. He's coming victoriously, and he's coming to rule. And Lord, we pray that this passage of Scripture would accomplish in every heart that hears it today, your purpose. I pray in your name. Amen. Let's look at this. The first in those first three or four verses, verses 11, let's say down through verses 14, 11 through 14, the coming of the king, the coming of the king. It says in verse number 11, I saw heaven opened. That's the second time this has happened in the book. It happened back in chapter four as well. Uh, heaven opened, the Bible said. Now, when this door opens in Revelation chapter nine, it's so that Jesus is so that Jesus can return, and it says that He's coming on a white horse. I I love this. I hope y'all like to ride horses. If you don't, you will one day. Uh, some people are scared to death of horses, but one day we're going to be very comfortable with them. Jesus is coming on a white horse. Let's talk about how it describes Him. First of all, with His appearance, the King's appearance. It says that he's coming on a white horse in verse number 11, that he's called faithful and true. In righteousness, he makes war, judges. Verse 12 says, his eyes were a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but himself. Verse 13 says that his clothes, he's clothed with a vesture, that's his outer garment. It's dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. His appearance. 
His appearance here has two different focuses of attention. There's two things being described here. First, there's his nature, and then next, there's his name. When it talks about his nature in his appearance, it says that he's coming uh, full of glory there in verse number 11. You know, when Jesus came the first time, he didn't look uh, any different than than an ordinary Jewish male. I know all the artists, especially uh, from the dark ages when they did all those paintings. I can't remember what that period of art was called, but they loved to paint a halo like he had a glowing head around him. Joseph got one. Mary got one. The, everybody got one. You know, if you love Jesus, you got a halo on your head in those paintings back in the day. To look at Jesus, he didn't look any different than any other Jewish man. That's not going to be when he comes back. That's, it's going to be so different. He's coming in glory. He comes on a white horse like the triumphant conqueror that he is. When you consider that, consider what it says about in verse number 11, he's faithful and true. You know that can't be said in perfection about anyone else. No one else has the right to be called faithful and true other than Jesus Christ. You don't and I don't. Because we're not always faithful and we don't always tell the truth. But he's noticed, did you notice this? He's noted with capital letters. He is faithful and true. He's called faithful and true. It says in verse number 11 that he fights in righteousness. You know, every war that has taken place on this planet that has been led by men have temporal objectives. Everything that you can win. I was talking to, who was I talking to just yesterday? Oh, I was talking to Chris Kane last night. That's who I was. I was talking to Chris. And Chris said he had a friend that used to say, you know, Chris, everything we work for is going to end up in a junkyard. And Chris laughed about that. But you know what? That's exactly true. Everything in my house is temporal. Everything that I wear, everything that I drive, everything that I own is temporal. Every war that's ever been fought has been fought for temporal objectives. But the cause of Christ is righteous. When he, it says in verse number 11, in righteousness, he doth judge and make war. This is what Adam Clark said on that particular verse. He said, the wars which Jesus wages are from no principle of ambition, lust of power, or extension of domain. His wars are righteous in their principle and in their object. Why is that? He wages war for the glory of God alone. In war, in righteousness, he makes war and he judges. In verse number 12, we're talking about his nature still. In verse number 12, his eyes are a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. His eyes were a flame of fire. That should send you back to Revelation chapter 1 and you remember John's initial description of Jesus Christ where it talks about his eyes were like fire. And we noted then, so we won't, we won't go through that all again, but the eyes of fire are telling us they are, they are consuming. There's a judgment, a pure judgment in his eyes. It's omniscient, pure judgment that he makes. He knows everything there is to know. He controls everything there is to be controlled. He does this with eyes that were as a flame of fire, it says. In his appearance, we note his nature and how he looks when we see him. 
but also, and there's an emphasis here in three different verses. Did you catch that? On his name. It mentions his name three different times. First, it says in verse number 12 that he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Does that, that kind of grabs your attention a little bit. You know, we know a lot of the names of Jesus Christ in Scripture. We know him as Redeemer. We know from Isaiah's writing, remember that passage of Scripture and prophesying the Messiah? Wonderful. Counselor, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father. We can go through those names. We know that he's the Great Physician. He is the the Morning Star. He's the Great I Am. We know a lot of names throughout the Bible for the Lord Jesus Christ, but we don't know this one. We, We don't have a clue what that is. In fact, on that day, I mean, John is seeing what's happening in the future. He was seeing then what will happen in the future, and on that day... He's going to have a name that's still secret to himself. You and I can get to know Jesus, and hopefully we are. Hopefully we're getting to know him better and better every day that passes. But there will always be some things that are mysterious to us about this great God because he's infinite, and we're we're not. He has this wonderful name. It's It's a mystery. So he has this name, first of all, that's a name of mystery. In verse number 13, he's got another name. It's a name of ministry. What's his name in verse number 13? His name is called the Word of God. Word is capitalized as it should be, just like it is in John chapter 1. And it is the same word in John 1 when it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same thing, the same exact word. It's the word logos. You remember that word. That word describes Jesus Christ. It talks about his essence. It's the one through whom God reveals his will, keeps his promises, and fulfills his prophecies. He's called the word of God because in essence he is God. It's the word, there's a name of mystery in verse 12, the name of ministry in verse 13, and in verse number 16, there's this name of majesty. Both of his garments are mentioned, an outer garment and an inner garment. The outer garment is called his vesture. And it says in verse number 16, on his outer garment, his vesture, and on his thigh, his inner garment. And note what it says, a name written. May I point this out to you that King of Kings is not his title. Lord of Lords is not his title. The scripture says that is his name. Here are yet more names of Jesus Christ, King of Kings, And Lord of Lords, the ultimate ruler of all the kings in the world. Think of the most powerful king who's ever lived. Get that person in your mind. The most powerful queen who's ever lived. Get her in your mind. He supersedes all of them. He is the king, capital K, of small k, kings. Think of all those who've held royalty in this world. The lords and the ladies. Think of all of the lords who've ever lived. He's the capital L lord of all of those little L lords. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the ultimate ruler. And he's coming back on this particular day to demonstrate that. He is worthy of our faith and he is certainly worthy of our worship. This is the king's appearance. This is how he looks. He's going to be stunning In fact, if you go back and look at chapter number 1, 
when John, when John starts describing who he sees, he sees in verse number, thir- uh, verse number 14, he starts John 1.14, or Revelation 1.14, John says, describing Jesus, his head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes were a flame of fire, his feet were like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace, his voice was as the sound of many waters, he had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength, now picturing him, or picture him rather, that person sitting on the most incredible white horse you have ever seen. That's who's coming back. That's his appearance. Then verse 13 starts talking about his apparel. We mentioned that a moment ago. We said that on his outer garment, there's this king of kings and lord of lords title. But verse 13 says something different about that, doesn't it? Verse 13 says that he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Dipped in blood. His clothes are stained with the blood of his enemies. If you're a note taker, jot down Isaiah 63, verse 3. We won't turn there, but Isaiah 63, 3 says, in fact, Isaiah 63, just so you know, that's about the Lord's day of judgment. It's it's the great day of God, Isaiah 63 is. But verse number 3 says this, I have trodden the winepress alone. And of the people, there was none with me, for I will tread them in my anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. Isaiah saw this hundreds of years before Jesus was born. John sees it thousands of years before Jesus comes back. And they're saying the same thing. There's that there's that wording again about the wine press. We've talked about that already in the book of Revelation the wine press, the crushing of God's enemies. And Isaiah and John sees it here. They're both talking about the blood of the enemies being all this is a this is a slaughter. There are no survivors in these armies. When God comes back to make war with his enemies, nobody walks away from that. The armies are completely destroyed. What an incredible sight when this one with with flaming eyes and white hair, comes back on a white horse leading an army, an untold number of of soldiers back on white horses as well, coming back in great glory. You and I have never seen anything like that. We will one day. We'll have a front row seat to this one day. We'll be sitting right behind him on our own little horses. This is going to be a great day. His appearance, his apparel, and then let's... Let's look at verse 14. Talk about his army. The army is clothed, it says. They're on white horses. They're clothed with fine linen and white and clean. I won't spend a lot of time here. I'm just telling you this. That's the church coming back. It's the bride of Christ. It's not the saints of all time. It's not the tribulation saints who've been martyred. It's not the Old Testament saints. Remember this. The bride of Christ is is comprised of those who have been saved during the church age and were raptured out of here or died during the church age. It's the bride following. How do we know this is us? You can compare verse 14 to verse number 8 in the same chapter. 
They're wearing the exact same clothes, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. It's the same wording describing the same people. They're called saints in verse 8. That's you and me. This is the church following him. I said a moment ago, I hope you like riding horses. If you don't, you will. You will. It's going to be a great day, a triumphant day. We're called, it says in verse number 14, the armies which were in heaven followed him. We're really coming just to be witnesses. We're going to be witnesses to this battle. We're not participating in it. We're just, we're going to watch him do his thing on that day. He's going to be, he's going to be a being that in no way resembles the person that he was the first time. Nothing will be the same. His appearance will be different. His purposes will be different. His power, his reception is going to be different. They didn't fear him when he came the first time. They will quake when they see him the second time. In fact, the Bible says when he shows up, they're going to wail. That's, that's a different reception than the first time. Well, that's the king's army. And then in verse number 15, it talks about the only weapon that this whole army coming from heaven has, his armament. Verse number 15 says, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. We have seen that happen again and again. Can you imagine this whole army coming? Here comes Jesus on a white horse. Here comes the the church behind him on their white horses. And among all of them, there's only one weapon. It is a sword proceeding out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. It is the word of God. We sing the song, there is power in the blood. Somebody should have wrote a song, there is also power in the word. There is great power in this word. He speaks and the fight's not on, the fight is over. When that sword, when that word goes out of his mouth, it is immediately done. The Bible says in in Hebrews chapter 4 that the word of God is quick and powerful. And it is demonstrated on this particular day. The word of God, it's an extension of himself. This is why it goes out of his mouth. He's the word. In the beginning was the word, and now this sword is the word. It's an extension of himself. You know, the unique thing about the word of God is that the written word has the power to heal and to save and to deliver. When Jesus speaks that word, he spoke it when he came the first time, and he he said uh, to a man with leprosy, I will be thou clean. He said to a blind man, be healed. He called a dead man out of a grave. But that same spoken word by Jesus Christ has the ability to destroy. And on this day, that's exactly what it's going to do. It's the power of, it's the power of his word. Do you remember when he was being taken in the Garden of Gethsemane? I love that, that picture. He's being taken to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they walk up to him with all the brashness and the boldness that they could muster because the Roman soldiers are there with them. And, and they say to him, uh, are, you, are you Jesus? He says two words, doesn't he? He says, I am. You remember what happens next? All those soldiers just fall down. He just spoke words, and immediately those soldiers fell down. That's the power of his word. It's not been unsheathed yet like it's going to be unsheathed on this particular day. 
this sword that proceeds out of his mouth is going to destroy his enemies. Up until now, the word of God has been saving people. Here it's coming as a weapon of war. That's the coming of the king. He leaves heaven. He brings us with him. And he comes to battle. Look at the command of the king in verse number 17. In verse number 17, there's a command. I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great king. And then, and you're thinking, well, that sounds like a good, I mean, you call me to supper, right? You call me over for supper. That's a good thing. But then you have that, you have a terrible verse in verse number 18. He calls all the birds, all the scavengers that can come. He says, come that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. First thing in verse number 17, he commands the fowls to come. He commands the fowls to come. God is going to prepare a feast before they ever come. God is going to prepare prepare a feast for these scavengers. And the feast is the carcasses of his enemies. The dead bodies everywhere. When this battle comes, birds are already going to be gathering at his command. You remember when Noah built that ark. I don't think Noah had to go round up a bunch of birds and a bunch of animals. They just, they came to him. God is summoning his created birds to this great feast. That would be ominous. Some of you are old enough to remember that, that Hitchcock movie, The Birds. That was just a creepy movie. We have these turkey buzzards that have taken up residence in Jefferson City. For whatever reason, they love hanging over there. They love hang out over at Carson Newman Campus. And at certain times of the year, uh, as it gets colder, there's a couple of buildings over there that put off a bit of heat in their exhaust. And so there might be 60 or 80 of those turkey buzzards hanging around in a very confined space. Sometimes they'll gather in those trees that are just, they're, in that, they're, they're over that apartment complex right there next to Food City, between Food City and the bank. And they'll go in there in the late afternoons, and you'll, you'll drive by there. You, you've probably already noticed them. You can't miss them. There'll be like 30 or 40 or 50 of those things just circling over there coming in. That's the creepiest sight there is, isn't it? I know what they eat. You know what they eat. And there's an army of them. There are just dozens and dozens of these huge They're just gross-looking birds. They're ugly. Big old beaks, big old talons, and they're just circling by the the thousands and maybe hundreds of thousands. Birds are going to gather before the battle ever starts. He summons these fowls. You know why he can do that? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So he commands the birds to come, and and they do. He commands not only the fowls to come, but in verse number 18, he commands the flesh to be consumed. There is a list of men here who in life have all been separated by rank. Uh, There are great men, there are captains, it, it calls them, doesn't it? Kings, captains, mighty men. 
both free, at the end of the verse, both free and bond, free and slaves, both small and great, rich and poor, if you want to read it like that. But death is the great equalizer. And those birds are going to eat the dead bodies of all of them. It doesn't matter what they had in this life. They all died the same way. On this particular day, they all die at the same time. People may think they're somebody, but if they die without Jesus Christ, they're nobody. Kings, captains, small, great, master, slave, rich, poor, doesn't matter. They're all dead, and they're all being eaten by these birds. Come, it says in verse number come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. He commands the flesh to be consumed. Did you know in that verse the flesh is mentioned five times? The flesh is going to be consumed. That is, uh, that is a reminder that it, it is appointed unto us once to die. The body that you have right now is not the body you're going to have for eternity. This flesh is going to fight. You remember Job got really graphic. Job in the Old Testament, he said, though worms eat my flesh, you know, from dust thou art to dust thou shalt return. I mean, this, this is just true. But there's another kind of flesh that's going to be destroyed one day. You and I battle the flesh, don't we? It's one of our enemies. We battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the Bible says one day our, our sinful flesh is going to be, is going to be destroyed. I, I would love to be able to blame everything I do that's wrong. I would love to be able to blame that on the devil, wouldn't you? I, I would love to have a t-shirt made I wear all the time that says the devil made me do it. And just blame everything I do wrong on him. Or, or the world tricked me and that's why I did what I did. I'd love to have that t-shirt too. I would love to say that the world and the devil are the reason that I sin. But they find a very willing co-conspirator in me, in my flesh. Paul said, in my flesh there dwelleth no good thing. Here in chapter 19, physical flesh is being destroyed. And I get that. But that verse also reminds me that one day my old sinful flesh is going to be destroyed. And I won't have to fight that old nature anymore. There's something in me that when the devil whispers in my ear, there's something in me that says, whoa, boy, that could be a good choice. There's something in me that when the world says, this will give you satisfaction, there's something in Mark Campbell that says, well, you know, it, it, that might be true. I might be a little happier if I had that. I might be a little more satisfied if I did that. The world and the devil find in me an accomplice. It's my old flesh. But one day that's going to be done away with. Judgment, uh, the, the judgment of my flesh and the world and the devil, it's all recorded in the scripture. One day all of our enemies are going to be done away with. You only have three enemies really in the world. You have the world, the flesh, and the devil. In Revelation chapter 18, the world is done away with. We saw that last week. In Revelation chapter 20, the devil is done away with. And in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 27, our flesh is fixed forever. All of our enemies are going to be gone. That will be a great day when our sinful flesh is dealt with and we don't have to deal with it anymore. Now that has nothing to do really with verse number 18. It's just that 
that word flesh just kept showing up and we battle the flesh so much. I thought, let's just be reminded that one day we won't have that propensity to do wrong. I look forward to that day. I get tired of finding temptation, don't you? You know why? Because sometimes I give in to it. And then you have the Holy Spirit saying, now, Mark, you shouldn't have did that. And he's right. The flesh. There's the coming of the king. There's the command of the king. And he calls all these birds. That's just going to be, a, that's just going to be a, quite a sight. And then finally, in verses 19 through 21, you have the conquest. The conquest of this coming king. Verse 19 says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the very next verse is, the beast was taken and with him the false prophet. They all gathered together, and the next thing you know, they're captured. Let's, let's look at these verses closely, because I, I, want you to see some, I want you to see some things here that maybe you haven't considered. There are a couple of things that dawned on me in this verse. Do you know that the Antichrist never dies? And the false prophet never dies. Well, I take it back. The Antichrist does die, then he's resurrected. But to get into hell, he doesn't die. This is an interesting passage of scripture. He's captured alive and thrown. The Bible is very clear about this. He's cast alive into a lake that burns with brimstone. This is an interesting thought here. Let's look at this at this, these, these three verses. Verse number 19, notice that this king draws the armies to Armageddon. First, he draws these armies here. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. He draws them to this place. We've mentioned this so-called battle of Armageddon, and I think that's, a, I think that's the title that we have given. We have given. I, I haven't searched that out. I probably should. But I don't think it's ever called the Battle of Armageddon in the Bible. I think we've called it that. But it's really not that much of a battle. We've discussed that before. But the day of Armageddon finally arrives. And and this is it in verse number 19. And the armies of the world that are, are here gathered together, some of them are bitter enemies today. But against this person sitting on this horse, you know, the the uh, what is the phrase... A friend, how does that go? The enemy of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. There it is. It'll get me, it'll get there in a while. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's going to be evidenced on this day. A lot of these armies that are coming together on this day, they can't stand each other today. They don't trust each other. They're trying to kill each other. But they're going to come together on this day. And the Bible says their their attempt is, their mission is to defeat him that sat on the horse, the Lamb of God. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Or to use the words here, the king of kings and lord of lords. That's their mission, to defeat him on this particular day. To put an end to Jesus once and for all. Good luck with that. Right? We know who he is. You know, since the fall of man, from from Adam and Eve's fall back in the Garden of Eden, man has always kind of determined that he controls his destiny. We've, we've picked up some of that into the American way of life in, in this, this thing about, well, you just got to gotta pick yourself up and you got to dust yourself off and 
pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and all of these things. And this, we can do anything we set our mind to. May I tell you that is not true. That is a humanistic thought. Don't let that uh, offend your American sense of citizenship or your patriotism. I'm just telling you, you can't do anything you set your mind to. That is not true. That is humanistic thinking. I say that because these people have come this day determined we can overthrow him. I don't care what they do. They can't. But there's something in mankind. There's this humanistic there's this humanistic philosophy that drives us that says, well, we, we, control our, we control our own fate. We control our destiny. If we just, we take control of things. You've heard preachers, I hear Dr. Manley mention it sometimes, this poem called Invictus by a man named William Ernest Henley. I'm most familiar with the last two lines of the poem, but really the entire poem drips of humanism and self-control in a bad way. Listen to this poem. Out of the night that covers me, black is the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. There is a self-determination there that slaps the face of God. How dare a man or a woman think that we are the master of our fate and the captain of our soul? I can't help but think in that, in that, that uh, refrain right before that, it says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I can't help but wonder if that's not talking about the scroll of the word of God. That were written. The Bible wasn't published like this. It was written in scrolls. I can't help but wonder if that's what he's saying. I don't really care about the punishments prophesied in the scroll. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Not hardly. God alone is sovereign, not man. God alone determines destiny and eternity, not man. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth, verse number 6 in our chapter, not man. The world's armies gather together here. Let let me just point this out to you. We, We believe this book was put down on paper at the end of the first century, making it give or take a little more than 2,000 years ago, right at it, right at 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, God said the armies of the world are going to gather at this place at the end of this seven-year period, and they're going to follow the leadership of this particular individual. God said that now thousands of years ago. The fact that that's going to happen, the fact that the armies are gathered on this day, shows God is the one that's in control. 
They're going to show up thinking they're going to defeat Jesus. Nope, you're just here by divine appointment. God told us 2,000 years ago, you'd be here on this particular day with this particular mission thinking you're going to destroy that enemy coming from the sky. You're not. God is in complete control here. His plan for the ages on that day is going to be perfectly and completely fulfilled. Let me share just a couple of scripture verses with you. Psalm 115 verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he pleased. Psalm 135 verse 6. Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth and in seas and in all deep places. Isaiah 46.10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. What's being said here? What's being said here is that God has a plan. He's working it out. He worked it out. Well, according to this one, he worked out the end at the beginning. Before it all started, he already had the end done. My counsel shall stand. I will do all my pleasure. He's in control. First, he draws the armies to Armageddon. And then in verses 20 and 21, he destroys the armies at Armageddon. This is that valley in northeastern Israel, Megiddo. A lot of things, a lot of battles have taken place in this, in this uh, valley throughout world history. And one more is coming, a main uh, to compare to none else. He's going to destroy the armies at Armageddon. They have all come, and with great power, he's going to defeat all of them. Look what it says in verse number 20. First, it says the devil's men are destroyed. In verse 20, it says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. I said a moment ago, it's very clear here that they were taken, not executed. They weren't killed in battle. They are captured alive and cast into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. This is the first time the lake of fire is mentioned in the Bible. The first time. It's going to be mentioned three more times in chapter 20. Here it's called a lake of fire because it's being introduced. We've not seen that picture before in the Bible. Nowhere in scripture has it talked about a lake of fire. But now I got a, I've got a good clear picture of what hell looks like. It's a lake of fire. Every time after this that it's mentioned, it's called the lake of fire. But here it introduces it, says they're cast into a lake of fire. These two satanically empowered minions of the devil are going to be taken by God and cast alive into this, into this lake of fire without physically dying. They are immediately sent to their eternal doom and they don't come out. This is the Antichrist and the false prophet. They're not released at the end of the seven years. Satan is thrown into the bottomless pit during the uh, thousand year reign of Christ. At the end of the thousand years, Satan's released, but the Antichrist and the false prophet, you're reading their end right now in verse number 20. They are cast into the lake of fire, and they're never coming out on that day. They're cast alive, it says. I want you just to stop for a moment. 
because the, the chronology here is important. The armies of the world are still watching. Their two main leaders, the Antichrist, the false prophet, are captured before them and they're cast into hell and they see that happen. Can you imagine the shock of those armies? The Antichrist is gone. The false prophet is gone. The two miracle workers are gone. And they're left standing there before Jesus Christ and his army. You can't help but wonder if they're thinking, I wonder if our doom comes next. Well, they realize in an instant that they have backed the wrong horse. Because he's just easily defeated. There's, there was just a word spoken, and the Antichrist is done. There's a word spoken, and the false prophet is gone. And now they're just two armies standing there facing each other, one with no leader and the other with an omnipotent leader. You have the devil's men being destroyed in verse 20, and their doom does come next, by the way. In verse 21, the deceived multitudes are destroyed. It says in verse 21, the remnant, that army that's left with no leader, the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. In a flash, the valley of Megiddo is filled with the blood of these how many, how many soldiers? They're all dead. Just like that. In an instant, the army dies at his word. And Revelation 14.20 says the blood is going to flow deep and wide in this valley. It's a terrible scene of destruction. Their souls go to hell. Their bodies fall to the ground. And these scavengers that have been summoned by their creator show up for the feast that was promised Back there in verse number 17 to them. Here they come. I don't make light of this. This is a terrible scene. Instantly, this entire army is slaughtered. I don't believe they die of heart attacks. They're slaughtered with a sword. It talks about the bloodiness of this battlefield. It's a terrible scene. But they have chose to rebel against a terrible God. Scripture on more than one occasion talks about the terribleness of the true God. And on this day, it's revealed. Let's, let's wrap this up. I don't want you to miss this. This is important. The word of God telling of a Savior who loves this world and will save all who receive him is the same word of God warning of a judge who will execute wrath on all who reject him. The same Bible. I'm saying that so you don't get caught off guard by those who say, well, God is love. Scripture even says God is love, and he is, but God is holy, and you can't have one without the other. The same God that tells of Jesus as Savior tells of Jesus as judge. And you have this huge, long age of grace where God's wrath has been held back, but on this day, it's turned loose. 
We don't have time this morning to turn there. You ought to write down Psalm 2, 1 through 5 and read about this day. The Bible even says this, that on that day when those armies get together, it says this in Psalm 2. On those days that those armies get together to attack and rebel and and try to overthrow Jesus Christ, it says that God laughs at their attempt. That's how feeble their attempt is. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. On Judgment Day, on Judgment Day, and we all have one. Every person in this room has a Judgment Day coming. You will either hear God say, Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord, or depart from me, I never knew you. Every person in the world will hear one of those two things. Come on in, or go away. That's the only two things. That's all you have to live for. That's that's the end of your life. Come on in. Or go away. The title of the message this morning is The King is Coming. My unbelief and your unbelief will not change that fact. He is coming. It is irrefutable and is unstoppable. He is a king that is coming. It is one of the most prominent themes mentioned throughout the Old and New Testaments. 1,845 times... In the Old Testament, the Bible talks about the second coming of Jesus Christ. 318 times in the New Testament. There are are 27 books in the New Testament. 23 of them talk about the second coming of Christ. Did you know that the second coming of Jesus is talked about in Scripture eight times more than his first coming? Did he come the first time? He did. There's eight times as many prophecies related to his second coming than his first. The king's coming. He is coming. God's been telling us this for a long time. There's an old fable about a man who in his early life made a, made a deal with death. He made a deal with death and the deal was death could have him, but death would not come without warning. Death promised, I'll I'll warn you when I come. Well, the years passed and the decades passed, and one day death showed up. And now the young man is an old man. And he said to death, death, you have not been true to your promise. You have not kept your covenant. You promised you you would not come unannounced. You promised you would send warning, and you never gave me any warning. To which death replied, Not so. Every gray hair on your head, every lost tooth was a warning. The dimness of your sight, the depletion of your strength were all warnings. I have been warning you your whole life that I'm coming. I'm saying to you this morning, Jesus Christ has been saying for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, I am coming. Be ready. How gracious is God to give us such detailed warning and and a great salvation, a great escape through salvation. How good is God to do that? God's not going to show up without warning. 
No, we don't know the day nor the hour, but he gave us all kinds of signs to be looking for. Are you looking for those signs? Because they're everywhere. That's what the songwriter said in the midnight cry. He said the signs of the times are everywhere. They are. God's been telling you, God's been telling me for thousands of years that he's coming. He's given us ample opportunity to be prepared. Jesus is coming. Judgment is coming. This is not a doomsday message. This is, abs- this is actually a message of hope. You know why? Because you're still alive and Jesus hasn't come yet. If you don't know him, you can be saved today. If you do know him, you can rest assured that no matter how bad it gets on this planet, Jesus is coming. The king is coming. I hope you're ready for it. I hope you're ready for that day. He's going to show up, he said, like a thief in the night. It'll be, un- it'll be unannounced until that very instant. But until that happens... He's given you an open door to come to him and be saved. And Christian, he's given you an open door. Why did he leave you here after he saved you? Wouldn't it not have been better for us if when we got saved, God would just have taken us right to heaven right then? Man, you miss out on so much bad stuff. If When you get saved, just okay, saved, good. That one's not going to hell. Good, that one's not going to hell. Why leave you here? It's to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world and tell people Jesus is coming. The king's coming. Be ready for him. Let's stand together, would you? Father, your word is true, and it's not going to fail. Not one jot nor tittle, Jesus said, is going to fail from this word. Everything's going to come to pass, just as you said it, on the day that you have already fixed in eternity. And we confess that today. We know Jesus is coming. So, Father, for those that are here this morning not saved, I pray that today they would make their preparation for that day, and there's only one way for them to do it, and that's to meet Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I pray for the believer today who is maybe struggling with hope, maybe feeling a measure of despair. I pray for the believer who's struggling with their witness in telling others about Christ. God, whatever you would do, with the fantastic news that Jesus is coming, whatever you want to do with that in our hearts today, I pray that you would do it. Help any unsaved people here to put off any hesitation to come to Christ today. Help the wayward Christian to come home. Help the sad and despairing Christian to return to the joy of their salvation and the hope that they have in the promised return of their Savior. And I pray this in your name. Amen.